This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything you should know about Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. When you go to Havoc Journal, you will read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. If you haven't been there yet, check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. Elliot Ackerman was a Marine Raider. He earned a Silver Star, Bronze Star with Valor, and Purple Heart uh, throughout five deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. He um, was briefly attached to Ground Branch uh, with CIA. And then he went on to have a wildly prolific writing career where he has managed to write about one book, or I should say publish, as he points out, publishing and writing are two different things. But he's published, uh, or had published, about one book a year since he got out of the military. Um, His latest book, Halcyon, is phenomenal. His PR person was able to send me an advanced copy. um, And I couldn't have enjoyed reading it more. I've got so much to say about this interview. Um, I'll try to sum it up as quickly as I can. So Elliot's writing career has not just been prolific. It has been uh, as prolific as it has been. It has been, uh, had even more accolades uh, from, you know, he's had editor's choice awards, uh, book of the year, all that from publications ranging from the Washington post, New York times, time magazine. Uh, He won the Marine Corps heritage foundations, James Webb award. He has uh, just been, highly lauded. And when I finally sat down to read Halcyon, uh, it's no surprise why. I mean, he's an incredibly gifted writer with so much lived experience that the richness of his characters and the themes that he explores um, just, you know, bleeds out of the page. Uh, I, you know, some ways I felt like the dog that caught the bus interviewing Elliot. I had first heard about him, I can't remember where, but I'd read an article or something about him before I was out of the military, and I wasn't really tracking anybody on social media or anything like that. And he um, and he stood out to me as it's like a name to remember, and I was like, man, it sounds like an interesting dude. And uh, I'd held off inviting him to the podcast for a long time because I really wanted to have the time to sit and read his work at length. And get smart on him and his writing style and the subject matters that he had written about. I mean, he'd written in-depth about Turkey. He'd written in-depth about, uh, you know, his role in the Afghanistan withdrawal. He'd written in-depth about his own military experiences in a memoir. He had uh, written what I'll call speculative fiction about uh, 2034 and a potential World War III with China. Uh, You know, he just had this such diverse subject matter that he'd written about. Um, I really wanted to wrap my head around all of it. And in the last week or two, I just kind of accepted the fact that that was never going to happen. That I was like, I just don't have the bandwidth. <laughs> I'm just, uh, I, I don't know when I'm going to get the bandwidth to fully uh, be able to process all of his work to the degree that I would be satisfied. So I reached out and we set up the interview. And I was like, uh, and when they sent me Halcyon, I had basically 18 hours to read it. Um, and I just knew I wasn't going to. And I, for me to read that, 
to read it that quickly, I would have had to skim it. And I just was determined from the outset to sit on each page and just enjoy the process and enjoy the writing. And it was not hard work. I mean, it's an incredibly compelling book. I, and I'm, I feel like a fucking illiterate, uh, the older I get, because I, you know, I'm blessed to have a lot of stuff going on. So I don't have a ton of time, but as a result, my reading has gone to shit and I just do not read as much as I, I would like. And to read proper literature like this, uh, was really a pleasure and to kind of give myself permission just to sit with his work was a real delight. So, um, then to have him on the show was a bit of a tease. Um, we had, didn't have tons of time to do the show. So afterwards I, I felt, I felt the itch still. I was like, uh, there's more, so much more meat on the bone, uh, to kind of chew over. And, um, I can't wait to have him back. I'm sure this time next year, he'll probably have another book or two out there'll be ample reason to have him back on. But what an interesting dude to talk to. Um, because Elliot, I, I haven't even mentioned Elliot's reporting work that he's done for the New Republic and the Atlantic, New York Times, etc. But because of the depth and breadth of the writing that he has done on so many different subjects, you know, he comes to an interview with a lot of very well thought out answers. So I found him to be very unflappable. Not like I try to flap people, let me say. Uh, but, uh, you know, he, he had thought out, you know, he's thought out an awful lot, both about himself and about uh, various subjects. So um, it just made me want more. It made me want to talk about even, uh, you know, more and more subjects and dive into other areas that we weren't able to get to on this interview. But uh, just such a great, interesting um dude to talk to and i can't wait to have him back on in the fullness of time okay on that note let's just get to it i'm christopher paul meyer and this is elliot ackerman's profile in havoc welcome to the show elliot uh, thanks for having me. It's um, so I always tell people, hey, it's great to have you on the show. And I start with this kind of small talk banter and all that. In your case, I didn't say this to you ahead of time. <laughs> I've kind of been um, looking forward to talking to you for a long time. Cool. Thank you. For, well, and for, for a bunch of reasons. And I'm saying that as a way of saying I'm going to go about this all wrong. Uh, this is not <laughs> the way I should have done any of this uh, because I really meant to read all of your work a long time ago. And when I think I first started hearing about you, like 2016, 2017, I think. And I was like, there's no way this dude is this guy that with your military uh, career and then the way that your writing had unspooled and the success you were having, I was like, dear God, I was like, what was he drinking, man? Like, this is, really an impressive streak. And I'm just going to recap. I'm going to say all this stuff in the intro that I'm going to record after the fact, but just as a couple of data points in the Amazon best book of the year, New York times book review editor's choice, Amazon book of the best book of the year, multiple times, uh, publishers weekly books of the year, a uh, New York times book review editor's choice. Again, Marine Corps heritage foundation, Jeb's James Webb award. Um, all these accolades, do you feel successful? Um, I don't know what it feels like to feel successful. I feel fulfilled. Mm. You know, I feel fulfilled in the work that I do. You know, I like the work that I get to do. I uh, I know that it's a real uh, privilege to be able to write and to publish. So uh, I try to never take that for granted. And the way I try not to take that for granted is I try to you know work hard and produce quality non lazy work and you know push myself to do to do new things and not kind of just keep on doing the same thing over and over again so um so i don't know if i feel successful i feel grateful you know well grateful and fulfilled is a pretty good substitute i think yeah. i think that's i mean and semantic substitute that might be the definition of success i think but um i read uh one of the books i of yours that I absolutely had to read before we talked was fifth act. Um, 
you and I unknowingly were both involved in getting people out of Afghanistan. Um, and I, I, I was really impressed, um, again, with the quality and the speed with which you wrote that book. And I guess, um, let me back up and take a 30,000 foot view to have written. And I know a lot of people have commented on the number, the, the number of books you've written in a relatively short time span. And I know you've said in the past, look, I write as I write. This is just how the ideas come. But you are, do you consider yourself writing commercial fiction? Does, do you ever get mislabeled as that just for the speed with which you turn around? Really well thought out, fully fleshed out, three-dimensional um, literature. Well, you know, there in, you know, publishing there's writing and there's publishing there those are two very different things right so the speed at which you write is not always the speed at which you you publish so uh and you know this kind of it's like a, a little bit of like an under the hood uh question but like some of the books like the my books aren't coming out in the exact order that i write them right okay. so i'm not like finishing a mm -hmm. book and then like it goes to the printers and then we do the next one so like a book like um you know, for instance, a book like like Places and Names, which is a memoir yeah. that I wrote. Places and Names was written before some of my novels came out uh, because it had a little bit of a circuitous path to gotcha. to to getting published. Um, my new book that's out right now, Halcyon. Um, I have two books that have not come out that were written before Halcyon, but then when I finished Halcyon. We decided that it would be smarter to stick mm. that one in the queue ahead of, so it sort of jumped into the front part of the queue. You know, the same with the Fifth Act, um, which was a book, you know, about the end of Afghanistan, which I was not wasn't a book I was planning to write, but then everything happened in Afghanistan, and I very quickly got signed up to to write that book, and um, so that sort of rejiggered my publishing schedule. So I um, I write at the pace that I write. Uh, you know, you know, we've, we've served in the military. We know sort of what those hours and the pace of work is like uh, in those types of atmospheres. So it's um, so I don't think it's, you know, it's certainly not a, a level of, of intensity and work that you have to do. That's anything that surpasses that, uh, and then, you know, beyond, you know, whether that makes me prolific or not prolific. I don't know how to say I just sort of work at the pace that I work. Yeah, I appreciate that. I feel like that. Um, well, let me ask, what is the pace that you work? Do you write every day? Do you have to write every day? I, you know, I'll, I'll sit around with ideas for years of, you know, that aren't fully fleshed out and I'll have kind of, you know, notes that I jot down here and there. It's just kind of a thought for a story is germinating. And, um, but then, you know, if the idea won't go away, then eventually I'll sit down, I'll be like a project that I'm actively working on. And if, you know, if I'm actively working on a project, I'm at my desk, you know, Monday to Friday writing, um, and, uh, you know, on a, on a like eight day, hours a day, I, you know, everyone has their different technique. I think there's only okay. one way. Like, so, you know, listen, I'm like, but, uh, I'm kind of, I'm a little bit of a grinder. So I say, all right, I'm sitting at my desk. I'm not getting up until I've written a thousand words. I'm going to do my thousand words today. And whether they're good or they're bad, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to sort of hit that number and I'll go back later and decide if they were, they were worth anything. Um, and many times they're not. I mean, I have, you know, if you were to go into my laptop right now, you'd see I have an sure. entire graveyard of projects that I, you know, wrote 50 pages on, 100 pages on. They got to some point like this isn't working. I threw them away. Or, you know, or maybe parts of those projects filtered the way into things that actually started working. So, um, um, so I've sort of, you know, worked at the, pace that I work in terms of books, but then, you know, I also work as a journalist. So I write, right. um, write pieces a lot, uh, as well for mm -hmm. various publications. So, um, but I'm happy, listen, I'm happy working. I feel, you know, we talked about the difference between happiness and being fulfilled. Uh, I feel fulfilled, uh, when I am working and putting in a good day's work. So I kind of inarticulately said, you know, what was this guy drinking that you're accomplishing all this? Um, I want to kind of pry into that a little bit and I'm going to speculate and you can just tell me if, if I'm off or not, but in the fifth act, one of the parts, um, one of the themes that I found was incredibly compelling was your relationship, um, with Jack and how you got out of the military and the second and third order effects of that and the way that was perceived and the 
repercussions that you felt. Um, and I, I guess there's no kind of cute way of asking this. Is there a part of you that feels an obligation to make having separated from the military worthwhile? Is that at all a motivating factor? Uh, if I were to put it differently, I would say it's, you know, to make, you know, I think for any of us who want to make our, our lives worthwhile. And so I certainly, you know, want to, want to feel like, uh, that I, I spent my time on this earth well. And, mm-hmm. you know, part of that is the, the work that you do, you know, part of that is, uh, you know, a friend of mine, actually, his writer has said to me, he's, he, he, he made the observation. He's like, you know, not much, not much passes down in this world, except for your children and whatever you create. Uh, and I think, that's probably, you know, that, that's probably a lot of truth to that. You know, what I, you know, what I created some books and, um, and, you know, and I've got my children. So, so in terms of, you know, whether or not my, you know, that, 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 that sense of purpose, I don't know that it, you know, germinates solely from, sure. you know, decisions to leave and to make good on having left. Um, but, uh, that certainly contributes it. And I think, you know, most people want to feel as though they've, uh, they've, you know, they've lived a, a life that, uh, uh, and done work that has, you know, mattered and left at least some type of trace. No, a hundred percent. I guess for me, it was when I was reading that I could relate to the sense that you're, um, as, because I, I, you're, I love the humility with which you're answering this. And I love the, um, yeah, the, the lack of ego that I'm kind of picking up on. Like I'm just writing, I'm doing this stuff at the same time talking with people almost every week that are veterans in different artistic media. I mean, it's not an easy path um, to go down and there's plenty of corpses figuratively, fortunately uh, littering the highway of people that have tried to, you know, become accomplished artists after a military career and find a hard time, have a hard time finding focus or have a hard time, you know, just moving the ball forward. It seems like I, I, again, this is, very remote perception, but it seems like you were shot out of a cannon the second you left the military. I know that wasn't the case. I know you had, you know, a job. There were a couple of down years, but how was it for you emotionally? Did you feel like, was it easy for you to wrap your head around what you wanted your post-military career to be? Or did it all kind of snap into place um, in a more difficult way? So, uh, I, you know, I was always someone who read. And I was always someone, you know, I studied history and literature in school. You know, when I look back when I was in, when I was in the Marine Corps, I like was even writing. I wasn't writing fiction, but I was writing like articles for the Marine Corps Gazette. I was writing like actually very obnoxious articles, like why we need to take the max score out of the PFT or, you know, why the infantry officer course should be harder. I mean, you know, but I was writing, I was writing these pieces. I don't know why I felt compelled to, to, you know, to, to write. So I was writing, I was writing a little bit. Um, and I sort of got to the end of my my tenure um, in in the Marines and had made the decision that you know that it was time to move on. That like I wasn't you know I didn't want to spend my I, I had a great you know and very fulfilled time doing this work, but it wasn't the only thing I wanted to do. Um, but I didn't know exactly what I was going to go on and do. It wasn't like I was sitting there the day I resigned and said I'm going to go be a novelist and write books and you know, I do this journey. I didn't, I didn't have that degree of focus. Um, but I did know that, um, I had always suspected that I wanted to write. And, and as I was leaving, I was like, I'm going to, I knew I was going to try to write something and I didn't want to write a memoir. Uh, and it was just a moment where there felt like there were a lot of memoirs. Um, uh, I didn't want to write for lack of a better terms, like a book that was like, you know, no shit. There I was like, I didn't want to write the type of book. And I, frankly, I wanted to write the types of books that had been very meaningful to me as I was beginning that mm-hmm. journey into the Marines. Um, and those were books like, uh, you know, Jim Webb's Fields of Fire was a book that meant a lot to me. Um, uh, you know, the things they carried is obviously a classic one. And, you know, so there were many wor- works of fiction and that's actually felt sort of like it made the most sense. I was like, I want to write, I want to kind of write a, a fictionalized version of my, you know, my wartime experience. And so I just sat down very, I was working a job in politics and um, I was quietly working on the novel on the side, um, just tinkering away. And I didn't tell anybody because I mean, candidly at that point, um, 
when I had absolutely nothing to show for it, you know, saying like, I want to write was saying like being like saying like, you know, I want to dance, you know, it just (laughs) felt very like silly. Um, But, you know, that's one of the nice things about writing is you can actually, you know, you can just quietly do it. Nobody, nobody has to see your, and unlike in other art forms like acting or dance or anything, no one really, the people don't see your failures as much. Um, They only really see the successes. Um, I think it's important for anyone listening who is writing, you know, keep that in mind. You know, you, the, the writers you're seeing out there who are doing like, you're only seeing their, their successes. Trust me. They've mm-hmm. got like, they've got cabinets full of failures. Um, but in the process of, you know, so I was writing my first book in the process of trying to figure out exactly what it was I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Um, and, and relatively quickly came to the conclusion, you know, I think I want to write, like, I want to try to do this. Um, so I finished that book. And um, by the time I finished it, I was, you know, pretty convinced that I wanted to try to be a writer and make my way, make my way in the world that way. And I found an agent rel- relatively easily. And I, you know, I knew it was, this was hard. Everyone told me how hard this was, but I was sort of amazed. I was like, wow, this is great. I, you know, got a got a very good agent. He's you know he's still my agent, one of my dearest friends to this day. Um, and I gave him the book, and he was super optimistic about it. Kind of at the time, I didn't know anything, but he handed me a list of spreadsheet of all of the, the editors and publishers he was going to send it to, and the whole strategy behind it. And here we go, and like, and uh, it was a summer, and uh, uh, at the beginning of the summer, he handed me that list, and like a few weeks passed, and I didn't really know anything. And I kind of reached, out. I was like, hey, what's going on with the list? And, you know, he sort of, you know, very gracefully sent it back to me. I was like, I'm sorry, this is our response. And it was basically 26 rejections. So this is sort of my first ever was this in writing was this very close to the bone autobiographical novel, mm. um, uh, you know, about basically about the Iraq war. So, um, so that, you know, that was like a real, you know, you know, kick in the nuts and, uh-huh. um, for lack of a better term. And I, um, but someone had given me the advice along the way. And I don't remember where I got this advice, but it made sense to me. And this was when I finished that book. They said, look, because I, I finished, I got to the end. I like, I didn't even know I could write a book. And I written the book and I was sort of, wow, okay, well, I guess I did this thing, you know? And it's like, well, now what do I do? And someone's like, don't never, ever wait around. Don't sit there and wait around for it to be a big success. Don't wait around for any external validation. You need to do your damnedest to decouple your writing life from your publishing life. So mm-hmm. you're a writer, you need to sit down and you start thinking about what your next book is going to be and you need to start it. And if you started that book, it will make whatever happens with the first book easier because you'll be on, you'll, you'll, your creative life will already be on to the next thing. And so I started doing that. And um, anyways, long story short, that second book actually became my first book mm-hmm. when the first book didn't get published. Uh, and that was really good advice. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's it's tough out there it's tough it's tough to have a creative life but i will i will add the caveat is i was once sitting out with my uncle uh who i'm you know pretty close with and uh uh and um i was once making the point to him i was talking about writing and publishing and his name's don i said you know don writing is just a really tough business and he looked at me after his many years of business he said you know what al they're all tough businesses. And I think there's a lot of truth in that too. So, you know, the arts is tough, but anything is tough. Try starting a business, try managing a restaurant, try doing anything, right. adding, adding value into this world is, is tough and you got to be gritty. And I try to be as, as tough and as gritty as I can. Um, and I think, you know, and I think there's, there's value in like showing up every day to do the work, however you define that work. And for me, oftentimes it's, as I mentioned, if I've got an idea and it's going all right, just making sure that I'm in the seat where you're seeing, sitting to me right now and I'm doing what I consider to be a fair day's work. What do you get? You talked about realizing that writing was turning you on and like, this is where I want to make my life. What was it that was appealing to you about writing? I think, you know, creation. And I listen, there's a whole coterie of guys who have come out of the wars and gone into as you know uh and and have gone into careers in the arts and i don't think that is particularly surprising it follows a trend of previous wars um where we see people who are you know at an early age kind of you know touched by fire for lack of a better words 
go on and spend the rest of their lives doing doing work that is creative. And I and I think that actually makes a lot of sense that if you, at a young age you spend a lot of time immersed in the arts of destruction, it makes sense that later in your life you would want to define it by immersing yourself in creation. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so okay. I get a lot of joy and uh, uh, on a day where I feel like I've created something um, that's worthwhile. And that's not every day. But, you know, if I'm sitting there working on a book and like those moments where I like figure something out in the book and the whole thing opens up, I'm like, oh, my God, you know, that's yeah. those are those are those are good and exciting days. They're optimistic days, too. Looking at all of your work together. How much of a theme is what if for you? I think a big thing. I think the fiction uh, is very much. Um, the exploration of what could have happened or what should have happened. Um, and I think that that is something that, you know, anyone who's served in combat in particular knows that you'll spend much of your life kind of wrestling over these questions of what could have happened or what should have happened. So, you know, you'll think about, you know, the tough day, I mean, when you lost someone or someone got hurt really bad and you'll sit there and you'll, you'll take that day apart over and over and over again in your head and so i think in in fiction it allows you to um to create something that is a that is an alternate story of what could have or should have happened yeah not specifically in war but in in anything so right right um so i think that certainly uh has you know has is something that i engage with in my books because i think i feel like there's a difference between writers who write to understand things in their lives or to unpack things from their lives and writers that are driven by an innate curiosity. And sometimes there are two, those two can merge and there can be an overlap, mm-hmm. but I, I mean, does any of that ring true for you? Do you feel like those are two different wellsprings that sometimes can instigate a story or do you feel like it all comes from the same place and you don't really go in with any pre-planned preconceptions? <laughs> The analogy I would use to sort of describe my writing, you know, kind of psychological process, for lack of a better word, is there will typically be some kind of issue or question that I'm thinking about that interests me, like in a very sort of macro way, you know, question or series of questions, theme. And I'll be kicking around that theme in my head for a while. Maybe I don't even you know, know it, but I'll start to see, oh, you know, I've, I've been asking these questions for a while. And then um, I'll try to sort of find a, like a, a story, like a contained story that will allow me to, you know, put these questions in a construct, like to the reader, you know, like a, and explore it. Um, and so usually um, when I'm at that stage of the process, right, the way I feel, and here's the analogy, is I feel like I'm standing in a field, right? And the field has got like, there's this tall, very dry, knee-high grass in this field. And as I'm standing there, um, I've got two things in my hands. And there are these two flints, right? Mm-hmm. And my job is to light the field on fire. So, all right, Elliot, if you do your job well, you're going to light this whole field on fire. So I start banging the flints together. And I'm like trying to make sparks that are going to fly off into the field. So those flints are like inevitably, like there's something that's happened to me, yeah. you know, there's like a memory, there a memory, a story that is true or whatever, but like the sparks, when they hit, that kind of becomes the imagination. So that's sort of, that's all imagination. Yeah. Yeah. And that's all like the could have and the should have and the, you know, you, know, you change things around. It's only a piece of the story, but so, um, so that's what I feel like. So as something's getting going, you know, the feel, there's sort of all of these questions, um, the, the themes I'm, I'm wrestling with. And the flints are like, I think with a little, this, this little thing I've got, I might be able to kind of take it in a much bigger, to a much bigger sort of conflagration of story. Um, and so if it goes well, like I catch the field on fire and when it's not going well, I'm like, you know, just like making little, you know, little bits of smoke and that's it. So. So in Halcyon, which as you know, I mean, you guys were kind enough to send me that, that, that copy of it. And I was sitting there. Again, kicking myself, going, why the hell did I book you for the next day? I was like, I really needed to take my time and read it. It's a, such a great read. I literally spent all night reading through it and determinedly trying not to just finish the book, but just to read and enjoy and 
sit on each page. And um, in that case, I'm assuming that at least one of the flints was, it's, it's, or it seemed to me the flints might have been death or immortality or some degree of rectifying, uh, reconciling those two. And a very overtly political statement of what if Al Gore had been president and Bush had never been president. And and that seemed like two flints that at least instigated or started the story. Is there anything to that or am I off base? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, the, the, in my mind, sort of the, the flint that started the story, um, and there's no way you could know this, was... Um, um, so my, my, my father-in-law and my mother-in-law had a, had a very significant age difference, uh, about 25 years. And uh, my wife is just a little bit older than me. So my father-in-law, who I never met, was in World War II. He was in the OSS and um, died in 2008. And so he is a, a person who is just revered um, by his children uh beloved in his community still uh, my wife is from from uh outside of wilmington delaware and i've uh, just lived this very very full life and to this day um there's just old, you know as i you know, joined her family there's this just refrain you get used to which is well, what do you think daddy would think about this mm-hmm. or what did daddy thinks say x about what it is so um so in the last few years i mean you know this kind con- this country's been through a lot uh, in the last like yeah. seven or eight years. Uh, and I don't, and I'm not saying that in any type of partisan way. I'm just saying like, if you look, there's been a lot of change, a lot of upheaval, you know, elections that people have had huge emotions around pandemics. Um, you know, I'm speaking to you today from Washington underneath like a cloud of Canadian smoke. And right. So there's, just, there's yeah. just a lot going on. And throughout all of that, there's always been this refrain in her family, you know, like, what would daddy think of this? What would he think about that? So I was right before the pandemic. Um, I had this very intense dream one night uh, where he and I were just basically like sitting at a table, having a drink and talking. Um, and when I woke up from that dream, it felt as though I had, I felt as though a, I had met him. Um, and it felt as intense as, as, as you and I talking right now. And so the flint for me there was I wanted it was just this question of, you know, what would it be like for a person, you know, not him, right? Because the book mm-hmm. is not it's dedicated to him, but it's not the character is not him. Um, but who is, you know, who is who, who is walking out of out of time? Um, and what does it mean in our own times where the pace of change is arguably as fast as it's ever been in human history? What does it mean for us to keep up with that change? And for those of us who struggle to keep up with these cycles of change that seem to hit us faster and faster, um, how are we judged? So those are like sort of these broad questions. Hmm. And then I sort of, and I'm like, okay, well, and I was sort of thinking about those and wrestling with those. Um, and then I started putting up kind of a story. I wanted to put up a story around them. So in Halcyon, um, the premise of the story, which is introduced, you know, in the first two pages is, as you mentioned, you know, in, in 1999, um, Clinton is convicted. Al Gore becomes president for one year. And then with the advantages of being an incoming president in 2000, he's able to edge out Bush in Florida and he wins the presidency. And so the little wrinkle I put in there, and this is true is that in 1999, that's the year we mapped the human genome, which is like a profound scientific achievement. And when that happened in real life, um, Bush became president the next year. And due to his religious beliefs, he shut down a lot of the federal funding. Um, And so in my alternate world, that never happens. And the federal government goes full steam ahead with research into the human genome. And as a result, there's this, uh, uh, I call it the great discovery in the first sentence of the book, which is, they geneticists figure out how to bring a few people back. And so one of the characters they bring out is the protagonist of the book. And you see um, many of our current social upheavals, uh, whether it's, you know, with gender or social justice, sort of are, are he is living through them in this alternate 2004. And so we get to experience sort of 
those questions in a in a little bit of a, a parallel framework. So um, fundamentally, the book is much less about like the politics of Al Gore or Bush or any of that, and it's uh, more about questions of um, of history, how we judge one another's, and how frequently you know morality is uh, is in some cases a subject of its time and in some cases fixed. And what's the difference between a fixed morality and a subjective morality? So those are some of the, some of the bigger meta questions in the book. I have a feeling I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you feel like you have told and unpacked what you needed to from your military service in a way that now you're almost freed up to be able to follow your curiosity and follow your interest so that you can be reactive to stories that are popping up right now and write to them? Not really. I mean, I, you know, and I, I hope this doesn't sound too precious, but I've always like bristled a little bit against the designation of being, you know, a, a war writer. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think, you know, like war is a timeless subject. Like was Homer, sure. oh, like was Homer a war writer? Like, you know, right. was Fitzgerald a war writer? Um, you know, was J.D. Salinger a war writer? Um, and what gets classified as war novels? Like I've always, you know, I always maintain that the great, the great novel of the Second World War, uh, you know, I like The Naked and the Dead, I like The Thin Red Line, but actually the great, the greatest novel of the Second World War is The Catcher in the Rye. Hmm. Most people don't read The Catcher in the Rye as a war novel, but if you, you know, if you know anything about J.D. Salinger, you know, sure. he, he landed sure. on D-Day, he fought in the Hurricane Forest, you know, the voice of Holden Caulfield, which is often kind of uh, interpreted as his, you know, voice of, you know, teenage disaffection. I'm like, I know that voice. That is the voice of a veteran walking around. Everybody's a phony. And if yep. you, if you read the last line, the last line of The Catcher in the Rye is, don't tell anybody anything or else you wind up missing everyone. And that, I mean, man, if that's not, if that's not the voice of a veteran, I don't know what is, but I only bring that up in the context of like, you know, the, the war is always with me. It, it, it fundamentally informed and informed my understanding of just what it means to be a human being, both, both the, you know, the aperture on which we live as, as humans, you know, on the mm-hmm. one hand of that aperture, it's, you know, all of the, you know, all of the depravity and brutality you see in war. And on the other hand, all of the, you know, the virtue, you know, and valor and love for people, one another you can see in war. So it's sort of that experience is the wartime experience will throw your aperture wide open. And I always carry that with me. Um, so, you know, and again, I, so I say, I don't want to be precious. Like, yes, a number of my books are like about war. Like I've read novels like set in Afghanistan. So of course it's about war. Um, but I know what they're about at, you know, kind of at a certain level. I know like the well that I'm going to. And when you say a novel is a war novel, it sounds like it's a book about like dive bombers and tanks. Sure. Um, and that's sure. not, you know, that's just not what my, what it really any of my books are about. No, a hundred percent. And that I can totally appreciate. I guess, let me clarify further. I guess what I would say is subjectively for you, um, do you feel not necessarily that you've written the war novels that you want or, or don't care to write, but more, do you feel like you've unpacked and gotten off your chest things that you felt you needed to say in a way that you're like, Hey, I don't have to, um, there's things I don't have to revisit now in my past. And I can now move forward and kind of look at other subjects. And I don't feel, you know, like there's not, I feel like it's blown the carbon out of the barrel. Like there's just, yeah. Hey, well, we got, like a, you got to get that out. Right. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to probably write another book of nonfiction about Afghanistan. Right. I, uh, right. who knows, you know, I never say never, you know, I wrote one memoir places and names. Um, I, at the time thought that was sort of the one memoir that I would do. Um, and then everything happened in Afghanistan and I got signed up to write this book. And then I realized, Oh, there's all this other stuff to write about. So, you know, you never say never, but, um, but I certainly feel on certain subjects and the act of writing is one of, you know, really sort of saying what you mean and exactly the way you mean to say it and really refining it and refining it and refining it. That on those subjects where I've done that, I don't yeah. you know, even know how I would do it again right. because I've done it. And I guess another way of me asking this is you couldn't have written Halcyon as your first book, could you? I mean, sure. it kind of needed to come now, right? No, I could have written it as my first book. Really? I, I mean, I didn't have the idea back then, but yeah, I could have written it as my first book. Okay. I mean, I don't, I, it's not like I needed to do all of that 
okay. get this thing off my chest. It's just so some of those other books are more like they're just more obvious, if that makes sense. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. You know, so um but uh, you know, then the books kind of come in the in the order that they come. So it's, and you know, and there's yeah. the, and there's themes that appear in all my books, you know, like you know, violence yeah. and generational violence. You know, there's a whole part of Halcyon, one of the controversies that Robert Abelson, the protagonist, gets looped into. Um, you know, he's a war and he himself, he's a World War II veteran. And so right. the war kind of plays in his past and how he is in one era um lionized for being this hero of the second world war but then later in his life you know as as winds change his his service becomes a little bit more controversial and then one of the controversies he's swept up in is a controversy about a uh, uh a monument on the gettysburg battlefield to the army of northern virginia and the confederacy so you know so there, you know there's certainly themes of war and violence and history and uh, intergener- intergenerational violence that are in Halcyon and, um, you know, and, or, you know, and I think a lot of my books that I'm interested in those themes. No, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm really impressed with that answer by that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of a way to ask a question to wrap my head fully around that. Cause to me, especially considering hmm, the depth of your military service and the, the nature of it, it's surprising to me that there almost wouldn't need to be that. It's surprising to me that you that you're like, yeah, I could have written Halcyon right then. That you would have had the mental dexterity to shift to write something that, well, it has warlike themes to it, and it mentions wars and there's references to wars, but something that wasn't so that wasn't unpacking so directly your very recent military experience. That's that's surprising to me. Um, that's incredible. That that you feel that way, um, and I'm jealous because that is really cool. That you feel like you could have pivoted and had that mental dexterity. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, I guess what I would say is I um I don't view my wartime experiences as like a, a wall I have to climb over so that I can do other creative work. I don't know if that's how you're asking the question, but I don't feel like it's like a mental barrier. I've got to like get over so I can get like I get my head over Mm -hmm. and put it behind Mm -hmm. me so I can go do think about other things I don't feel that way I feel more like it's just you know it's just if 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 who I am is like a braid of experiences Mm -hmm. um you know some of the strands in that braid are like their color is like electric green so everybody can see them from a mile and there are other strands in that braid they're just like regular old rope co- colored. So they're not that distinctive, but they're all equally important and they're equally part of who I am. So I would, so that's fair. Think yep. about it. And like the electric green braid is like, Oh, here's Elliot. He's this, you know, he's a veteran. He had these experiences and people sort of can see that from a mile away, but that's no more important to me fundamentally than like who my mother was, you know, the relationship I have with my brother, um, you know, my father, like my wife, my kids, my, mm-hmm. you know, the things I did, the things I did uh, in the summers when I was a kid, the fact that I was a skateboarder, the places I moved to growing, like those are all, you know, the, those are all for any person, right? That's like, those are things that are fundamental to who you are. Um, their color, though, is just sort of more like regular rope color because we all have that. Sure. So you have this one experience sure. is like, like a, maybe it's a little bit of an outlier and it's more like electric green and the way our society is. It's like, oh, that's your identity. Um, but we all know that those things we wear as our external identities um, are not, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say, I don't feel like those are really who I am. That label is not who I am. You know, these other I- things are actually who I am. I couldn't agree more with that. Certainly when it comes to your identity and even when it comes to the depth uh, and meaning of all those different braids in your life, I think you put that perfectly. I guess uh, for me, what I'm trying to reconcile in my mind is the significant, having a, a high volume of significant emotional events in a relatively compressed period of time is almost, for my, in my mind, or at least maybe this is just me, I feel like would I'm going to have to front load unpacking those before I can get to the other stuff because I'm like, hey, I just came through the pipe. I gotta, I gotta kind of 
right walk but through that might, a little bit just because that was you might unpack it but you might unpack it in an unusual way like you might be like what do what salinger did like i you know sure. i believe this thing i think salinger is a simple like i'm not going to write about this i don't want to yeah. write about this and i'm i'm going to write about this but i'm not going to do it in the way people think i'm going to do it i'm going to create a vehicle that allows me to write about the thing without writing about the thing and that will that will actually uh empower me to engage with this experience i think sometimes yeah. when you yeah you know, and I, I, you know, like I wasn't going as far as, as he went, right? Like I just said, I don't want to write a memoir. I'm going yeah. to write a novel about this. And then I can make some stuff, you know, I can do a lot of could have and should haves and blow things out and feel freer in a novel. Um, and, um, and some people take it further away. So my point to you is like, when I say, you know, I'm ultimately just me writing. So uh, the novel is just the, you know, the right. construct. Right. So, right. um, or the book is the, is the construct. So when I say like, oh, I could have written Halcyon right out the gate. I'm like, well, if I, if I come up with the idea for that construct, I think, you know, I would have been able to, you know, I mean, it's the experience that I have now having done this for, you know, more than a decade, notwithstanding, I feel like I, you know, sure. Why not? Um, and I think, you know, creatively, sometimes we need to just let ourselves you know, go and go in different directions sure. and not feel like you have to just, you know, sometimes it's great to take the thing head on, but sometimes, you know, maybe not. I, I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't at least briefly ask a question about your family, because your family was very accomplished. And I'm thinking, first off, the first person that comes to mind is your brother, who, mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, he was an Olympic wrestler for the UK, right? And then became yes. a math professor. I mean. There's a high level of accomplishment, it seems like, in that household. And why? I, I don't know a better way of asking that. I mean, have you looked back? Is there a reason why? Um, I mean, is somebody with kids and looking like, boy, how do you raise kids that are getting after it and, and being fulfilled and walking down paths that they want to walk down and excelling at them? Um, yeah, I'm intrigued as to how that happened. Um, my... Uh... My brother is, I mean, he and I are very close. We actually, when we were in college, we roomed together all through school, but we're, we're, we're at least superficially, we're very different. Uh, although if you come to know us, I think we're actually pretty much pretty, pretty similar, but he is a, you know, one of these people who God just touched him. And when he was very little, you know, I, I remember being, uh, maybe, I don't know, four or five years old in the back of the family station wagon with my finger up the nose, banging my GI Joe's together. And he was asking questions, you know, like that, if X equals seven and Y is unknown, he was doing like basic algebra when he was a type. So he just, he, and he's always been, he's always been, he's always been a mathematician. Um, and then he wrestled and, you know, and took that to, um, you know, to a very high level. Um, so I don't know what the, I don't know what the, uh, the answer is. The one thing I would say though, is, you know, so I look at my brother and he's one of these people who is a was a person who always sort of had his path mm. being mathematics and wrestling that was who he was and he is you know if you knew him when he was five and you knew him today he's the same guy um i had a much more circuitous route i mean i was growing up i was a uh a creative kid then i was like a real skate rat i had you know i maybe had a c plus average through most of my high school career um i was you know hanging hanging out with the wrong crowd doing many of the wrong things for many many years i was sort of like a guy like flying his plane right into the mountain and i pulled up just in time um so uh so for i think for um i don't think there's just there's i don't think there's one answer when it comes to kids right you know kids right, are right i have my i have my own kids you know they yeah. um they all contain multitudes yeah the only thing i'd say is you know you you say when you when you mentioned my brother, I think we all have a tendency when we just sort of, you know, we or looking at people, we don't necessarily know them. So, you know, my brother, you know, he uh, was a wrestler who became a mathematician. The thing is, like, if you knew my if you know my brother, you'll know he's always been a mathematician. <laughs> mathematician. Yeah. He's always been a mathematician. And then yeah. he had this sort of chapter wrestling. Yeah. And so the people so people will often say to me as a corollary, they say, well, Elliot, it's like so, you know, people, people who know my military chapter will say, like, it's really interesting. Like you were in the military. And, you know, you're a Marine and a special operator. And then now you write novels like that's So it seems just such a strange departure. The people who've known me the longest, like since I was a little kid, like, you know, Elliot, we always thought it was so odd that you were in the Marines for all those years. You're always this sort of like creative, 
you know, a happy go lucky kid. And, you know, then you ran off into the Marine Corps. So I just bring this up in the call in the context of, again, like we all, all of us, um, you know, we all contain multitudes. We all contain different chapters in our lives. Um, and there's something wrong with that. Um, so why did you go to the Marine Corps? Why did you join, uh, up with Marine ROTC in college? What was appealing about it to you? Well, I, uh, I'd say sort of there's three reasons I grew up, you know, I grew up overseas for a number of years. I mean, not nowhere super exotic, but in London, in the UK. Um, but even with that little bit of distance, I think it gave me just a perspective on, you know, what it means to be an American. And I got to travel a lot during that time. So that sort of made me want to give something back, uh, serve. Um, I wanted intellectually, I knew, and I joined up before I joined ROTC before 9-11. So it was pretty, it was, you know, it was peacetime, but I intellectually, I wanted a job where intellectually I knew whether I was good at my job or bad at my job, like matter, like had consequences. So like the idea of, you know, finish, you know, when I was in college or finishing college and like going and being like a, you know, a clerk somewhere, uh, and making photocopies, like, you know, didn't really appeal to me. And I couldn't think of anywhere else where, you know, they would put you in charge of, you know, 46 people at 23 years old. And, you know, that's what being a platoon commander was. So I was when I was in the ROTC. So that's why I joined ROTC. And then I'd say the last thing, though, is, um, you know, I was one of those kids who never stopped playing with his G.I. Joe's. Like, I always had this innate fascination with the military. So you sort of combine those three together. That's what, you know, made me um, want to join. And then 9-11 happened. And then so suddenly, you know, the, right. the the world became like a very, a very different place very quickly. And what sort of seemed like, you know, at the time when I joined, I was like, you know, this will be great. I'll have some really interesting experiences you know, maybe I'll, you know, I said, maybe I'll get to like, you know, go deploy once overseas and that'll be exciting. Um, you know, then everything became like just very immediate and very real for a whole number of years. Am I right again, not knowing anything except what I'm reading, but am I right that it seems like you took to the Marine Corps really well though? It doesn't seem like it was, you were a complete fish out of water. Is that true? No, I, I would say, you know, once I decided that was what I was going to do and I, I, I was like, I, you know, I was all in. I, I love, I, I love, I love being a Marine. I am still a Marine, you know, but I, yeah. I loved it. That was, um, you know, some people, they go off to college and they have like their alma mater, you know, like where that's, and they get a lot in their life from, you know, their alma, my, my, my alma mater is the Marine Corps. Um, you know, that's, that was the school I went to. So, um, and my, my, you know, so many of my very best friends are uh, are from that time. So, um, you know, I I love the Marine Corps. That being said, though, I am cognizant that the one, the last way kind of Mother Green screws you is as you go out the door, she takes all the bad memories and like, you know, like men, men in black, she vanishes them from your mind and all you're left with is all the good memories. So sure. uh, I'm, I'm certainly, you know, I, I certainly can at times, you know, be susceptible to a, a a nostalgia that veterans have for their great days in the Marine Corps. But I think even that nostalgia, notwithstanding, uh, I look back at that time very fondly, even, and even though it was really, you know, very intense and very tough times, I still look back on it fondly. Was there a decompression time for you when you got out? Was there a rough transition? Was there, was there any difficulties with that? I'm not trying to rake up old graves or make you do you know deep analysis on yourself, but I'm, I'm one of the things that I'm getting in this interview that I didn't expect and I guess it's so rare that I run into it. It seems like you have an incredibly resilient attitude towards your time where it's like, yep, made an impact, but you're moving forward. And it's, you're able to matter of factly see very clearly um, in hindsight, how things needed to play out and all that. So I'm just wondering, um, I'm wondering if I'm getting it right. I mean, uh, was there any sort of difficulty in the transition or what, or was it easy to shift gears and become a civilian again? Well, I, I, um, I think the one, you know, the one thing that was challenging for, you know, I've written about this. I think, you know, when I look, when I look at veterans and I look at all of us sort of as a demographic, um, I mean, there's, and we talk a lot about PTSD in our community, right? And so there's a type of PTSD, which is, you know, flashbacks and very, very intense. And like, and so what I'm saying, I'm about to say is not to diminish that, that's its own very real thing. Um, but and I've written a bit about this. Um, but then there's this sort of, you know, PTSD that I would kind of call like, you know, sort of this, just this sort of rootlessness, this purposelessness. Um, 
And that's very insidious. And I've seen that probably more than I've seen any other form really upend people's lives. So as I've always looked at it, like right, when you, for any person to be happy, you have to have a sense of purpose. So like to give you like a very vanilla example, like let's say there's a man, he works a job, that job puts food on the table for his family. You know, he watches his children grow and get a better education than he does with more opportunities. Like that purpose gives him a sense of meaning, a sense of happiness. So I think when you go to war at a very young age, you develop a pretty like dysfunctional relationship with purpose. Mm. And so much as like at 21, 22, you know, you're sitting there and maybe you're like in Afghanistan and you're at some like godforsaken outpost and you've got to, you know, and you're got to secure that outpost with probably, you know, a group of guys who are going to become some like some of the best friends you ever have in your life. Like that's a very intense sense of purpose. At least at that level, your mission is pretty clear. You know, or you're in Iraq, you know, securing, you know, 10 city blocks with this group of folks who are, again, be some of your best friends. Very clear, intense purpose, at least at the tactical level. You know, so I would say, like, if purpose, right, let's say purpose is like the drug that induces happiness. In war, at 21, 22 years old, like, you are freebasing the crystal meth of purpose. Yeah. Like, there's nothing more yeah. intense than that purpose, and you're getting it every day. Um, you know who you are, you know what you're about, you're there with your buddies. Um, but like eventually, you know, you, you come home, like you, you can't do it. For, even yeah. if you stay in uniform, you don't do it forever. Yeah. So, and then you sort of have to reckon with, okay, you come home, you're sitting there and you're like, all right, well, what am I going to do now? You know, how am I going to repurpose myself? And so maybe you look around and maybe you're like, well, I can get a job at Home Depot. I can go back to college and school. Maybe I'm going to sell real estate. And so before you were like freebasing the crystal method of purpose. Now you look around and all there is, is like the coolers light beer of purpose. Hmm. And then yeah. you realize, you know, a certain realization sets in like, I'm going to spend the rest of my life sitting on my front porch, drinking coolers light. And then there's this attenuate, there, there, there's, there's this depression that attends that conclusion. And so again, when I look at the people out there, who I know, who, you know, many of whom have really struggled. I'm like, they, they've, one of the reasons they've struggled is that they can't find that next thing yeah. that will give them that purpose. So, I mean, back to specifically your question, um, you know, when I got out, I felt so lucky as, you know, the first couple of years I'm out, I'm trying to write this book. And in the process of trying to write this book, I've realized this is the thing I want to do next. Like this, you know, will give me, you know, it's not a one for one, but this I think will give me a type of, you know, fill me with purpose, you know, to do this work, to do this, you know, to create this, to create books, to create art. Like this is what I want to do. Um, but I didn't know that I could do it, you know, yeah. at the time. And, uh, and I hit, you know, my fair share of rejection and doors getting shut in my face and tons of tons of work just to get the no. And, you know, and so there was, you know, there was a whole period where, you know, yeah, I, I really liked what I was doing. But uh, it was terrifying to think that maybe as lucky as I felt and fortunate as I felt to know, like, yes, this is the thing I want to do. Thank God I found something I want to do that could make me you know, feel as, as full as my military career made me full. It was very frightening to be like, but what if I'm not able to do it? Um, and I think that is, you know, that, that is not a fear that is like unique to a veteran, like any creative person. If, sure. you, you know, if you love to act, you love to sing, you love to play music, you love to write, whatever, like, you know, the arts are tough. Uh, no one says you're going to get to do that to a meaningful audience. Um, but I think when, you know, as a veteran, when you kind of layer on this other, you know, this, this, this other um, experience, which is coming out of a, a realm where there's very intense purpose, you know, that can make it even more challenging. Is there anything, was there any sense of the necessary narcissism that you have to have in the arts that like, if I don't do this, nobody really cares. So I better really care a lot about this. But to me, one of the things I've seen and heard and felt to a certain degree is it, that the talking about the sense of purpose, it's such a different purpose. I don't, there's no, um, first off, there's no immediate gratification mm -hmm. in an artistic pursuit. And secondly, it's just for me, it, I gotta, I gotta love this and I've got to be in love with it. And there's no selfless service necessarily that's, you know, trumpeting itself in your face. It's you got to find that if it's selfless and if you think there's good that it's adding, which it is, you got to unpack that. Yeah. You got to find that. Right. And so that the difference also in the nature of the purpose that you find, was there any of that for you as well? well sure. I mean, I think there's the process of, you know, when you're, if you're, when you're working in the arts and it's not going, you know, well, 
um, you're not getting any type of external validation. You're not getting the, you know, yeah. way to go, a yeah. round of applause, you know, you're yeah. not, you know, or in the military, you know, you know, maybe they put a medal on your chest, you know, in the arts, they give you a great review somewhere, but you know, as you know, you don't always get that. Um, and that is not unique to the art. I mean, that's life too, you know, that's just, that's just life. Um, but I think that the, again, a little bit of this like comes back to the, or I was before, like we kind of contain multitudes um, and so much is, let me, let me just wait. So when I was in the military, I had this recurring nightmare. And, um, you know, so I would probably every six, about every six weeks, uh, I would have the dream. And as I mentioned, I was like a skater rat and I really had to go through a transformation, like get in shape my senior year of high school to go into the Marines. And I did it and, you know, walked a very narrow path after not walking a narrow path when I was a teenager. So I would have this like, this dream where like suddenly while I was in the core, like on the dream, in the dream, I would be like back at the skate spot. I'd be like kind of doughy. My hair would be all froed out. You know, I'd be wearing like baggy pants. I'd have my skateboard and I'd be like, you know, smoking a doobie with my friends or like whatever thing I wasn't supposed to be doing anymore. Yeah. And I would like wake up from that dream, like in a panic, like, <gasps> you know, I'd like touch my head and I'd like, I, Oh, I got my high and tight. It's like, you know, four ten in the morning. I'm supposed to wake up in 20 minutes, you know, yeah. for PT yeah, yeah, yeah. and like, I'm like, okay, I still got the edge. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. And then I go about my business. So I had that dream for years. It's the only re recurring dream I'd ever had in my life. Um, and then I left the military and I've never had that dream since. Now I have a different dream. And so the dream I have now, again, is about every six weeks is I'm not like back at the skate spot with my hair long. I'm back in like training area six in Quantico and it's final land nav. And I have like yet to earn my designation as an infantry officer. And that's all I want to be in the world. Uh, and I've got to find my land nav boxes and I'm like running through the woods. Am I going to find box number seven? Because if I don't, they're going to make me like a bulk refueler in Alaska or something horrible. And I have that dream and I wake up like, oh, and I'm like, oh my God, I'm like, you know, okay, I'm, I'm me. I'm okay. I did it. You know, that's all in the past. And so when I psychoanalyze myself, I'm like, why do I have that dream now when I kind of had the reverse dream before? And I think it's because you know, again, we contain multitudes, like in your life, yeah. my mother has this saying, she's like, you know, the great thing about life is you can do everything you want to do. The only thing that's challenging is you can't do it all at once. Um, so there's a whole part of me that, oh, there's a whole creative part of me when I was a Marine officer that I had to kind of subliminate that I had to certain, I wasn't engaging with, um, because that world and that job didn't have me engage with it. And so that recess part of my personality was what was coming up in like the skater dream. And the land nav dream I have now is because, you know, now I'm an artist, you know, I'm an, I'm an artist. I sit yeah. at this desk where we're talking for hours a day by myself, trying to, trying to finish books and create books. And, um, and in a working day, I might not see anybody. Uh, yeah. And because I've, but I've had to suppress that part of me, which, you know, used to deal with like dozens and dozens of guys who are in my units and just all day meeting with people and talking yeah. with people and planning things that required, you know, a mission that had, a, you know, dozens or hundreds of us involved in it so but that's okay like that's natural that is just part of life you know different 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 chapters at different yeah. moments yeah listen i know you're pushed for time so i'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna ask one more question and then yeah. let you go do you miss it at all or is it really different chapters has it been have you been able to close the, the door and go look i'm doing things of great service now and i'm feeling fulfilled and i've and or is there a part of you that, you know, thinks what if, you know, and wants to play with that idea, even if it's to exploit it in your writing and go, what if, what if I'd stayed in? I'll give, I'll give two answers to that question. One sort of the glib answer and the one is the non-glib answer. So the glib answer is if I were to ask you, uh, did you enjoy high school? You know, maybe you would say, yeah, I had a great time in high school. If I was to say to you, do you so want to go bad. back? Yeah. You'd probably yeah. say, no, I don't want to go yeah. back. Yeah. So there's a little, you know, there's a part of me that feels the way the Marine Corps, like I had a great time in the Marine Corps. I don't want to go back. Like, I don't want to go back. I, you know, I, I did it. Yeah. Um, you know, the other one, which is, which is, I think, less glib than my high school answer, would be like, yeah, of course, you know, like I, um, you know, one of the things that has given me huge pleasure, particularly in recent years, is to watch my contemporaries, particularly the ones who stayed in, um, you know, put on rank. I mean, all of my dumb lieutenant buddies are now colonels. 
um, and they're doing amazing things. And you know, you know, leading infantry battalions, and a couple yeah. of them are pretty close to becoming regimental commanders, which just blows my mind. Um, and I'm so happy for them, and I take such just sort of delight in vicariously seeing all that they are doing. Um, but I, I, but I, I don't. I don't want to, their path was their path and my path, yeah. my path. And yeah. what I would give up by walking a different path is, is too much for me. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, yeah. I'm happy. And I, and, and even if nothing had worked out, I would have, the questions would have been too large for me. So I don't feel any regret, uh, mm. except that, you know, none of us can live every possible life that we could live. So you have right. to make some choices along the way. Listen, um, thanks, man. Thanks for coming on and doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, total, total pleasure. Thanks for um, all you guys do. Well, listen and write more books. Come on back and talk to us more because uh, I'd love to. I'd love to, you know, stay in touch and uh, stay on top of the next books to come out. But really, this was a blast. I'm glad we could do this. Yeah, likewise, and uh, we'll do. That was Elliot Ackerman's profile in Havoc. Cannot wait for the next time we get to talk. Hopefully, this time next year when Elliot's written one or two more books, or should I say has published one or two more books, um, being that he's probably already got them stockpiled somewhere at his house. Anyway, I uh, look forward to the next time that he and I can talk and mull over some stuff. Okay, we started off this episode by thanking this episode's first sponsor, Second Mission Foundation. I now want to take a second and thank this episode's other sponsor, my own nonprofit, Veterans Repertory Theater. For those of you that do not know what Veterans Repertory Theater is, I'm punching up the exact verbiage because you would think I have it memorized, and I kind of do, but I always end up forgetting one thing or another. So I'm actually going to read this so that there's absolutely no confusion. Veterans Repertory Theater <laughs> is uh, its my nonprofit. It is a tax-exempt, nonprofit 501c3 organization. It provides a platform for talented veterans to create compelling live theater and events. And we have a website that you should go to, vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. When you're there, what I would recommend is just scroll partway down the page so that you can subscribe to our literary blog, which doubles as our mailing list. Um, and you can subscribe for free. But what will happen is that every day in your email inbox, you will receive a little piece of veteran writing, veteran fiction, creative nonfiction, or poetry. And um, and then we'll put a bunch of shameless plugs underneath that so you can see what we're up to. But uh, go to vetrep.org and subscribe to the blog. You will be glad you did because we have a lot of stuff going on that you guys will want to see and know about, I promise. So, thank you to Veterans Repertory Theater for co-sponsoring this episode. Okay, I need to thank this episode's producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of everyone at Havoc Journal. See you next time for another Profile in Havoc. <laughs>